everyone. Uh, welcome to Twins Talk Clear Cut Communication. This is Ray and Bob coming to you from Ask Again, Michigan. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway. And hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. I'm Bob. And communication has been a curiosity of mine for over 45 years. First as a college administrator, then as a university professor, and finally as a consultant to some major and minor corporations. Big and small, they all had communication issues. And I'm Ray, a former vice president of human resources, a retired psychologist and teacher who clearly understands that weak communication makes maintaining quality relationships tricky. Being in coaching contact with physicians and business executives over the last four decades makes me both old and full of some great stories. Hey, Bob, good being with you again. We've published our first session, and already we've gotten some feedback, and one of the pieces of feedback was in the form of a question. A Michigander wrote in and said, uh, I think it was Ray who spoke about repetition and how that is not a successful mode of communication, yet politicians, I bet, would say otherwise. Perfect example is Trump's communication style and the big lie. Can you expand on the difference in, say, a child's constant nagging over and over again to succeed in getting what he or she wants and the Trumpian method? I guess I'd respond initially to saying when when we introduce politicians and introduce Trump in particular, we're really talking about a form of communication that I would call mass communication. And that's when people are speaking from platforms to large audiences. What you and I will be focused on for the most part in our conversations is interpersonal communication. My first reaction is to say what works in interpersonal communication is not what works in mass communication. That Yes, people can be extremely repetitive at a mass level, repeating the message time and time again, and people will begin to buy into it just because of the repetition. But if you reflect on interpersonal communication and that how that affects the, the dynamic within a conversation or within a small group conversation, you see that the repetition versus redundancy actually causes people to react more negatively than positively. And as far as kids crying, I mean, that's just uh, back to our second episode, which that listener didn't get a chance to hear yet about expressive behavior. They're just doing what works for them, gets them what they want. And for most of us, that is what communication is about. From what I think we're arguing, we're saying in interpersonal small group encounters, movement towards being more strategic in the way you communicate is going to make you more effective than repetition. So do you think I missed it? No, I think that hits it exactly. I would say that repetition never aids communication in relationships. Repetition may bury a point. It It may get it set inside someone so that they can't forget it, but it doesn't improve relationships, doesn't create a dynamic exchange that promotes healthy contact. I think that's a great observation. I think relationship, that word is a key because most often, at least my experience has been when people become highly repetitive, uh, it's a downer. It's a bummer for me in terms of communicating. It It just puts a strain and a stress on the relationship if we're going to constantly keep being repetitive in the way we talk to one another. So hopefully, if that uh, 
listeners listening in, if they'll feel like they've gotten some response, feel free to write back and say, you guys don't have a clue of what you're talking about. And we'll be glad to give it another shot. We'll probably uh, ask you to unsubscribe. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting choice on our part. Okay. I'm going to start by pulling out from the last session, kind of where we stopped. We were, we, we ended on what's called the four stage model of skill acquisition. And I want to create a thread to get all the way back there. Message design logic, three uh, beliefs, if you will, the expressive style, the conventional style, and the strategic style. And that our goal is to encourage people to move toward the strategic style. Yes. That in this day and age, the strategic style is the most effective form of communicating. Now, in order to do that, one of the things that you and I know in this movement, getting people to move, is that they have to develop new skills. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to move their uh, communication skills up to a new level if they want to make that transition into being more strategic. And with the four-stage uh, skill acquisition model, it allows you to understand how that's best done. Now, just for common understanding's sake, I want to define what we think a skill is. The simplest definition I've heard that I think is most accurate is that a skill is a set of behaviors that produce a desired outcome. Now, that's pretty plain, pretty vanilla, pedestrian, but that's pretty accurate that skills are always behaviors. They're not attitudes. They're not thoughts. They're actual behaviors. Shooting a basketball, sewing, driving a car are all skill sets. Now, in this four-stage model, uh, we move from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious competence to unconscious competence. Tell a short story here and use the driving skill as an example. I remember when uh, my son Matt was learning to drive. Well, actually, he he wasn't even learning. He was young, uh, well before he ever learned to drive. He would sit in the backseat of our car and say, you know, Dad, driving is so easy. Anyone could drive. I bet I could drive right now. And he was maybe 10, 12, 13. Okay. And, and I think when you ride as a passenger, it does look easy. And so when he became of age to drive, to start to learn to drive at about 15 or 16, he would say the same thing. You know, dad, this is really easy. Well, then I put him behind the wheel. I, one day he said that once too often. I saw a large parking lot. Uh, we stopped in the parking lot. I got out, moved over to the passenger side of the car and said, Matt, you drive. And he was clueless. He didn't even know what he didn't know. He didn't know in that day, day I was driving a car that had a clutch. He didn't know what the clutch pedal was for. He didn't know uh, where the turning signals were. So very clearly, he became consciously incompetent. He moved from that simple belief that I could do this easily to, you know, this is harder than it looks. So the previous belief or the previous position was he was unconsciously incompetent, right? Right. When he thought he could do it without any effort. And that makes me think, how many people out there are unconsciously incompetent on a regular basis? <laughs> and a whole what range of consciously incompetent folks out there, pay attention. And a, and a whole range of skills. Well, and, and then my question would be, what moves a person? Mm-hmm. Okay. And actually, it's just putting your hands on it, just doing it. That's what moves a person from being unconsciously incompetent to being consciously incompetent. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about going from consciously incompetent to consciously competent. 
And at this stage, what I was experiencing with Matt was he would get in the car and he would get a white knuckle grip on the wheel and he would drive and he would be working so hard to stay in the lane and keep keep everything safe that he became kind of rigid. And so I would kid with him and say, you know, Matt, good drivers look around a lot. Good drivers feel comfortable enough to change the music, change the radio. And then his little hand would jet out, touch the radio and then get right back on the wheel because he knew as long as he had two hands on the wheel at 10 and 2 we were probably safe so conscious confidence is very focused attention as long as I'm focused I'll be able to do this skill this behavior reasonably well now you referred to Matt's hand as little yeah do you think Matt you think Matt will feel good about that right now when I don't think so I think he'll realize that I had lost contact with his age now his hands are Normal adult size at about 15. Okay, 16. so he was probably 16 or 17. My memory of Matt is his hands were pretty big at that moment yeah. in time. Matt's got good size hands. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to disrupt getting, from, getting from un, uh, conscious incompetence to conscious competence is a matter of practice. Just getting the tools down, getting the rules down, kind of playing within the, the guideline, okay, and that you just focus. The final stage, moving from conscious confidence to unconscious confidence, takes thousands of hours of rehearsal until you feel like you could do it blindfolded. You know that you're unconsciously competent at something when you can do two things, you can do that and something else at the same time and neither suffer. So those are the four, four stages. Bob, you got any examples or thoughts on that? Well, my, my reaction is you're helping us set this up to now start talking about communication as a skill. That is that we need to be thinking about this model as a way that we can increase our skills of communicating and thereby increase our effectiveness. And so when we were talking about this uh, at the last episode, we were saying, so what will be the skills that we want to address that will increase our effectiveness as a strategic communicator. And I think both you and I landed on at least an initial one worth considering seriously and strongly is the skill of listening. That listening as a communication skill may be one of the most important and underdeveloped skills we have. My first reaction is in the coaching that I've done is a lot of people think they're great listeners. But that's one of the things that works against them is they always believe that they are really good listeners. And in fact, most people are very bad listeners when you think of listening as a more active response, an increased engagement in communication, but from a listening model. In fact, I'm watching you shake your head and think, okay, a lot of folks think of listening as this extremely passive activity. As you gave the example in the last episode about the fellow in your workshop that said, listening is just really waiting for my turn to talk or preparing uh, for my turn to talk. And a lot of people view that as listening, and it really reflects itself in a very passive form of activity. That'd be my reaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listening is right at the top of the list of things that you've got to get better at. And I agree with you. A lot of people think they are good listeners, effective listeners, skillful listeners. And in truth, they aren't there there yet. One of the most close. One of the most interesting things in my academic area of reading is a longitudinal study that's been going on for over 30 years that asked two questions among many others, but two questions that I find interesting. And that is, what's the one communication skill you would like your supervisor to have more of? And two, 
What's the one communication skill that you think your supervisor is the weakest in? Both answers come out the same every time for 30 years running, listening. I like my supervisor to be a better listener. And I think the worst skill my supervisor has in communicating is being effective at listening. So it it gets itself borne out in organizational setting after organizational setting. That listening is a tremendously important skill, but one that's often more underdeveloped than any of us would like to give credit for. Some other skills that we think will move people along that path to more effective communication, strategic style, is being able to provide feedback. Providing feedback is a necessary skill, particularly in a leadership role. You have to give people performance feedback. You have to give people a picture of of how they're performing. Uh, Another one I think is managing conflict, being successful at the situations that are naturally going to occur that create a lot of tension. And two people, quite frankly, are trying to avoid that rather than believe that there's ways that I can, through communication, mitigate, uh, manage these situations. I would also say that uh, facilitation, Bob, you use another word for the facilitation skill. What else, what other skill did you mention that? Were you thinking coaching? Yes, yes, that's, you were talking about coaching as a, a skill set for strategic communicators. So we'll we'll get into a lot of those uh, future episodes, but today I think we wanted to focus on listening. Well, in fact, I, b- before we move on to listening, one of the things that I think about as you've been kind of unpacking what are some of the skills related to being a more effective strategic communicator, that each one of these skill sets breaks down in even more specific behaviors. For example, the skill of listening breaks down into the ability to ask questions, the skill of facilitation breaks down in the ability of being able to read context, to be able to read group dynamics. So one of the things I think about is that given what we've tried to design as a podcast that runs for about 20 minutes, several of these skills, we're going to have to take pieces at a time because the behaviors that are embedded in the skills are worth exploring and talking about individually. So I want us to go on to listening, but I thought I'd I'd put that one out there because even as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, there's so many things we could talk about just as we talk about listening on this first pass. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a pretty good input on your part. I don't always (laughs) expect that. Well, Okay, listening. You think I'm just another pretty face? (laughs) Well... No, I don't actually think that. I don't. I don't think I ever have spent much time on that. But uh, it was solid input. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Listening, listening. There are uh, there are research behaviors related to listening that indicate that the use of these behaviors makes a huge difference in your effectiveness in the perception that you are in fact listening. Uh, what do you think the number one behavior is? related to people's perception of you as being a good listener? Oh, I don't think. I know. The number one behavior in our culture is eye contact. In fact, it's so, uh, in, in fact, in our culture, and I'm speaking about the American culture here, if you are not making eye contact, as far as the person speaking is concerned, you're not listening. So it's just that simple. And we've all had that experience where we'll be talking and we use our children a lot as examples. We'll be talking to one of our kids and say, hey, you're not listening. And they will repeat back to us verbatim what we've just said. And our response is, you're still not listening, which essentially means you're not attending. It's not that you're not hearing me. And there is a distinction to be made between hearing and listening. It's that you're not attending to me. And that's what people mean. So eye contact. Yeah. Number one. Yeah. Well, and let me let me clarify that. Okay. 
It's not eyes contact. It's not eyes contact? It's eye contact. When we listen, we look at one eye. Huh. I don't know what it is, but my therapeutic practice, what I remember happening most often is I would make contact with the person's right eye. Huh. And we don't make contact with both eyes simultaneously when we're listening. It's eye contact. This came home to me in uh, one client situation. It was the individual walked in, sat down, and we started a conversation. And I was practicing good listening and making eye contact with his right eye, and it was moving in odd directions. It was out of sync with his left eye. And I was really getting lost. And after about two minutes of really trying to bear down and get it right, I just couldn't keep contact with the guy. I wasn't listening. I was distracted. So I stopped and said, you know, I, I kind of fancy myself a pretty good listener. And I'm having a real problem. I think it's important to make eye contact. And I'm not quite able to do that with you. Uh, is there something going on with your right eye? It's kind of moving in odd directions. He said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, that's an artificial eye. I just got an implant about two weeks ago and it hasn't quite synced up yet with my left eye. So it's going to be a while before I've, I've got it just right. So I said to him, I said, so your left eye is live. Uh, it's, it's what you see out of. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, okay. And I started making contact with his left eye and everything was fine. Amazing. It's just, it's just that important. Uh, I don't think, was a, I'd have to say I don't think I've ever been that specific before, but now you've given me nightmares about me looking at people and trying to figure out what do I, what eye do I want to make contact with? And uh, this more than what eye, it's that when people's eyes are out of sync, other people will find it difficult to listen to them. They don't know why. Well, the reason why is because you're making contact with the wrong eye. You need to stop and ask a question. You need to ask about that uh, issue with their eyes. Otherwise, you'll be continually distracted by it. But eye contact, yeah, absolutely, Bob. Eye contact is the number one behavior related to the perception that you're listening. Now, the truth is there are people who make eye contact who aren't listening at all. So that that's no guarantee. But I will say this. People who say, well, I'm shy and I don't tend to want to look directly at other people. Well, should you do that, you'll never get points for listening. Okay, a second behavior I've got down here in terms of my notes is nodding. Mm -hmm. Now, not nodding off. But nodding. We're not like one of those little uh, dolls that you sit in your car, you know, where the thing just bobs everywhere and nods. You mean the bobblehead dolls? The bobblehead dolls. So yeah. we don't want, not nodding as if, as if we're a bobblehead. Okay. So let me wonder with you, what, from your perspective, is the purpose for nodding? Is to acknowledge. I mean, uh, with this notion of nodding, what we end up doing is we maybe have nothing to say, so we're encouraging the person person to continue on. It's a continuation exactly. mechanism. Yeah. And so it's just uh, one of those things that we're encouraging the person to keep speaking, which becomes that's problematic. Exactly, if you that's don't exactly it. Yep. Okay, keep going. Nodding, that's exactly what nodding does. It gives the message to the person speaking, keep going, I've got you. Mm-hmm. Don't stop there for me. Now, it doesn't exercise the kind of control you'd help for, uh, hope for in the fact that if you nod faster, it won't make them speak faster. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. So it doesn't have that kind We've of all done that. Or that kind of control. But it is a behavior that is associated with effective listening. Mm-hmm. When you don't want to stop people at that point, you nod to allow them to go on. It gives them permission. And then we were, uh, another uh, behavior, listening behavior that's critical, and you mentioned it, and we'll, we will probably have to spend a whole session on that, is uh, the idea of asking questions. Mm-hmm. And there are several different types of questions you can ask. You can ask closed questions, which are one-word answer questions, or 
short answer. Uh, what's your name? Where do you live? How old are you? Those are all, they have a definite right answer and it's a short answer. Another question you could ask is the uh, open-ended question. How do you feel about that? How has that been for you? Though that encourages people to answer in, in, in broader sweeps, broader ideas. And then there's also a kind of question called a clarifying question. We're just asking people to be a little bit more defined, a little bit more descriptive in what they're saying. And like you mentioned earlier, the example of saying, okay, I get that you are saying this, but can you help me understand this part of that comment? That's a clarified question. You're narrowing it down. And quite frankly, from my perspective, the goal of asking questions in the course of a conversation, one of the critical goals is that it helps you shape the conversation to give it more meaning. You're actually helping the person who's speaking by drawing out of them those things they've really wanted to say, but maybe haven't quite hit on the meaningful elements yet. Wow, Bob, just looked at the time. We're really pushing uh, the 20-minute mark that we're trying to stay within. So let me kind of bring today's session to an abrupt close, even though it's not tidy, that we've been talking about listing. Next time, we'll go on to some additional listing behaviors, explore further how to use that skill, how to develop that skill. But for today, I kind of would like to end with a an axiom that I use related to listing. And that is that I know listing is real work. And for a lot of people, they're not familiar with doing the real work of listing. But let me say this. If you're not working, you're not listening because hmm. listening is work. Yep. And I'd add to that some research that I've always loved to cite in the field of communication is that in interpersonal conversations and even in small groups, there is such a thing called the two-minute rule. And the two-minute rule is if you've let someone talk or if you talk two minutes uninterrupted, you've talked too long. That generally all of us have the capacity in an interpersonal conversation to be able to sustain an interest and in, in attention for two minutes. Now, I want to flip that and talk about the idea that if as a listener, you're letting someone talk more than two minutes without interrupting them. And the question will be, how do I interrupt them? Because we all have people that we feel need to be interrupted, but we're reluctant to do that for a variety of reasons we can get into next time. If you're letting people talk more than two minutes, you're letting them talk too long and you're not doing your job as a listener. You're not working at it. So it kind of reinforces what you're saying. Listening does require work. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. Remember, no communication problem is too big, too complicated, or too intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is. Almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the musical score that began and ended this podcast. Thank you.